and we're going to be talking about change this morning. And um, when it comes to change, I am what they call in the marketing world a late adopter. There are uh, innovators who create change, early adopters who embrace change. There's what's called the middle majority who eventually accept change. And then there are people like me who are leery of change. And I'm leery for three reasons. First of all, I'm skeptical. This new change can't possibly be all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, why do I even need a, this new iPod anyway? My Walkman is working perfectly fine. I'm stubborn. I don't want to change. I'm stuck in my ways. I like printing off my MapQuest directions. Thank you very much. I don't need your smartphone telling me where to turn. I'll decide which route I'm going to take. But most of all, I'm slow to change because I'm scared. What if I don't like the change? What's it going to cost me to change? I was late to start dating because I was scared to talk to girls, scared of having my heart broken. I was late to have kids because I was scared of losing my freedom, scared of being a bad father. And I was late to give my life to Christ because I was scared of surrendering the reins of my life over to someone else. They say, Jesus, take the wheel. Not my will. I was clinging to my will, white-knuckling it as hard as I could, like my life depended on it. I was stubborn. I liked being the one calling the shots, and I was skeptical. I had been raised in the church, and I knew a whole lot of Christians who didn't appear to be all that changed. Can Jesus truly change a person, or is Christianity just a bunch of snake oil? Maybe some of you can relate this morning. Maybe you're skeptical, you're stubborn, you're scared, you're late adopters like me. Change can be hard. Otherwise, we'd all be early adopters. But it can also be really good. Just speak from personal experience. It worked out for me with the iPod, with the iPhone, with dating, eventually, with kids, absolutely, and most especially with faith. I can't count how many times in the last 10 years I've looked back on my life and thought, man, why didn't I surrender my life to Christ sooner? And this morning, maybe that's you, and I hope to persuade you from the example of yet another late adopter, a guy named Saul of Tarsus, that you should come to Christ. If you're a Christer, that's what we in the church call those of you who are only here on Christmas and Easter. Welcome back. It's good to have you. Uh, you may know this guy, because you don't know the Bible, uh, you're only here twice a year, but you may know this guy by another name, the name of the Apostle Paul, who would go, to, go on to author half of the New Testament. Paul is the artist formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. Or perhaps this is your first time ever in church this morning, had somebody in the 930 service who told me he'd never been to church before. Praise God. We are so glad. So delighted, so honored, if that's you this morning, to have you with us. And to try and quickly answer some of those questions, who's, I've never heard of Saul or Paul or the New Testament. The short answer is God wrote a book. It's called the Bible. The second half of it is called the New Testament. And he used this guy, Saul, who became Paul, to write half of the New Testament. Okay? But before Paul could pen half the New Testament, Saul first had to be changed. He had to be radically transformed by the power of the gospel, the power of God's spirit. And this is the story all about how his life got flipped 
turned upside down. In five important ways, as you're going to see in your bulletins this morning, because the Bible is God's book. It's God's word. It's not just some boring history textbook. It is living and active. And so we're going to read ourselves into Paul's, Saul's story this morning. God wants to change you and me this morning in the same way that he changed Saul 2,000 years ago, if we will let him. And so it doesn't happen without God's spirit, God's power. So now we're going to pause and pray again. I invite you to go with me to the Lord. Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, that it has the power to change, to change us, to make sinners into saints, to bring life out of death. But none of it happens without your spirit. And so, Father, I pray, would you send your spirit to be amongst us this morning, to be in us, to work inside hearts this morning, and to transform, to change hearts for Jesus. Would you call a sinner home this morning? Make a sinner a saint. Bring life out of death. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here at West Hills, we are currently studying through the book of Acts, which is the fifth book of the New Testament. And we've already met Saul of Tarsus once, back at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, when an angry mob descends on the first Christian martyr, Stephen, to kill him. We read, they cast Stephen they cast Stephen out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the whole church in Jerusalem. And Saul, uh, this is two verses later now, just two verses later, Saul was ravaging the church, so he's gone from passive observer to active participant in the persecution, leading the charge, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And by the time we pick up Saul's story this morning in chapter 9 of Acts, he has decided to franchise the whole persecution business, and he's taken it north to Syria to a town called Damascus, and that's where we're going to pick the story up in chapter 9 in verse 1. I'm going to be reading this morning from the English Standard Translation, uh, version of a uh, translation. And so uh, if you don't own a Bible this morning, though, oh, we would love to give you one of those at the info bar. That's the best gift you could get this morning, other than salvation, if you get saved this morning, which we are, of course, praying for. Uh, verse 1, chapter 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, stop right there. We've already been introduced to the first significant way in which Saul needed to change. He needed a new purpose. Some of your translations may read there, but Saul still breathing out threats. But the Greek verb used here actually means to breathe in, to inhale. So the implication here is that persecuting the, the church has become like oxygen for Paul, for Saul. I'm going to keep calling him Paul because that's how he is up here. So you, you, you get what I'm saying. He's Saul. This whole story, and, well, the second half, he won't be called Paul until chapter 13. But he, he's, he's a new person after this morning. But Saul, it's like oxygen for him. It's what fuels him. Threatening and murdering Christians is the reason that Saul wakes up in the morning. It has become his life's purpose. See, Saul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees saw themselves as the defenders of the one true Jewish faith. 
Later in life, Paul will actually, you know, talk about how he used to brag about it. He remembers how he used to take pride in persecuting Christians. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of church. I was so zealous, adamant about my faith, dogmatic about my faith, I would kill people for it. Now, you may not be sold on Christianity yet this morning, but I bet, I hope, the one thing that we can all agree on this morning is that if murdering people lands you at the top of your religious hierarchy, if being so adamant about your faith leads you to kill people who disagree with you, you need to radically reevaluate your religion. Amen? Okay, we all agree on that. Reevaluate your life's purpose. Let's keep reading, still in verse 1. So Saul went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. To prove how zealous he was, Saul goes all the way to the top, head boss, the pope back then, the high priest in Judaism, to ask for permission to go to Damascus to arrest Christians there. Damascus was located some 150 miles north of Jerusalem. It would have been a week's journey, but Saul would have traveled to the ends of the earth just to lock up some Christians. By the way, did you catch, before we move on, did you catch how the church was referred to there? The way, those belonging to the way. They won't be called Christians until chapter 11. They're those belonging to the way. That's why Saul was so zealous to silence them because they had the audacity to claim an opposing religious exclusivism to him. Not a way. If they had just claimed to be a way, maybe they wouldn't have been locked up again. It was the way. After all, they were following Jesus. Jesus who claimed of himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God except through me. That is an exclusive claim. You can't get to God except through Jesus. Now, maybe that's what's turned some of you off to Christianity. It's exclusivity. And if so, I just want to point out two quick things this morning for you. Number one, everyone is exclusive. Everyone is exclusive. The inclusivist who prides himself, herself, on accepting all other beliefs as equally valid actually refuses to accept the exclusivist beliefs because the inclusivist says all people go to heaven, if there's even a heaven. You believe in heaven? Great. Heaven's good for you. Go to heaven. All people go there, though. They got to go there. The exclusivist says, no, only some people go to heaven. Many people don't. And both of those two people can't be right. That means the inclusivist must exclude the exclusivist beliefs as invalid. Now, does your brain hurt yet? If it does, maybe you're going to like my second point better, and that is simply that of all the exclusivists out there, which is all of us, of all of us, Jesus was the most radically inclusive person you'll ever meet. Jesus was hated for it. He was judged for it, criticized constantly for it. The Pharisees, guys like Saul, they were disgusted by Jesus' friendships with prostitutes and tax collectors, that Jesus would touch lepers, that he would welcome children, that he allowed women to be a part of his inner circle. This was unheard of. So, can I just say this morning, if you have ever felt excluded, 
if you have ever felt like a second-class citizen, unloved by Christians, by so-called followers of Christ, because you weren't good enough, because you weren't godly enough, you weren't successful enough, you weren't white enough, you weren't straight enough, you weren't conservative enough, whatever enough you didn't measure up to, whatever boxes you didn't check for someone else in the church so that you were made to feel like Jesus must not be for you on behalf of the church this morning, I want to apologize to you. Those people were not acting in accordance with the way and the truth and the life with Jesus. I want to assure you this morning, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He loves you right where you're at. Unlike everyone else in your life, maybe, Jesus doesn't have a set of hoops for you to jump through to say, here, here's what you need to do to earn my love. He loves you right where you're at. Now, he loves you too much to leave you there. Jesus loves you enough to point out when you're not walking the way, the right way, when you're not following the truth, when you're not living the life, the best life that he desires for you. Because he loves you, he'll point it out. But he doesn't stand off dispassionately and say, clean up your act and then come and we'll talk. It's a story where Jesus illustrates this about a guy who told his father, essentially, I want you to die. Give me my inheritance now. And he goes off and squanders it on unrighteous living. And he's face down in a pig trough in his own filth and muck when he realizes what a mistake he's made. And his father doesn't make him sit on the front doorstep and sweat it out and clean up. Go take a shower and then we'll talk. He runs down the road to meet him and accept him and wrap the best robe around him, and he says, I love you. My son, you're home. God didn't wait. Jesus didn't wait for Saul to clean up his act. Saul was literally on his way to go murder some more Christians when God grabbed him with his love and his mercy. God loves you. Back to Saul now, verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone. Here we go. All around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul has made his life's work out of persecuting trying to stamp out Christianity. But here is Jesus, the author of the faith, the resurrected Jesus who has ascended at this point back to the right hand of God the Father back in Acts chapter 1. He now steps off his throne again momentarily to come back down just to confront Saul and give him a new purpose. He says, get up. I'm going to tell you what to do now. I am going to show you a better life, Saul, a better path, a better purpose. Maybe that's you this morning. What is your purpose in life? Maybe you don't roll out of bed to go murder Christians every day. I hope not. But there are all sorts of bad reasons to roll out of, bre- out of bed in the morning. Maybe you live to please people. Your parents, your friends, your 
boss. Maybe you live for material success, money, stuff that drives you. Maybe you live for pleasure, nice meals, nice vacation, nice sexual relationships. I don't know. Whatever your reason for getting out of bed in the morning, if it's not God's reason, if it's not God's purpose for you, it probably boils down to this. You're probably living for you. If you're not living for God, you're probably living for you. Pleasing people really boils down to, it's it's about my reputation. Success is really about my security, my peace of mind. Pleasure is really about maximizing my happiness. And if we're honest, even our ostensibly good deeds, our best deeds, selfless deeds, are mostly selfish. They're mostly about feeling good about who? Myself. Can I be really honest with you all this morning? Sometimes people ask me, wow, you graduated divinity school as an atheist. You were a 27-year-old youth pastor when you finally surrendered your life to Christ. What happened? What changed to convince you of the truth of Christianity? You want to know the real answer? I wish sometimes that I had a, a better, holier answer, like Lee Strobel, who devoted a year of his life to studying the case for Christ and he discovered all of the evidence for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection it was just too overwhelming. He was compelled to believe. But can I be honest with y'all? My answer is much more selfish than that. My life didn't work. It wasn't working. I had no job. Uh, sorry, I had no joy. I had a job, but I was bad at it. I had no joy. I was addicted to porn. My marriage stunk. My so-called ministry, it was a joke. Teenagers can see right through a phony A youth pastor who's not walking with the Lord. My life was a mess. A mess. That is where me being in charge had gotten me. And so my own conversion experience was far more pragmatic, at least the reason for it was more pragmatic than it was intellectual or theological or anything else. I had lived most of my 27 years unhappy with me calling the shots. And so I decided I'll let God have a chance, I guess. He can't screw it up any more than I have. And can I just tell y'all, can I just encourage you, if that's any of you this morning, can I encourage you from the other side of it now? It is so much better, so much more fulfilling to live for God than to live for yourself. It's so much better. It's not always easier. It won't always maximize your happiness, but it will maximize your joy. It will bring you peace. It will give you hope. We'll give your life meaning and purpose that it doesn't have with you at the center of it. And it is worth it to live for him because he is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And Jesus wants to offer some of you new purpose this morning, if you'll let him. Number two, we need a new vision. Verses seven through nine, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, how do you make sense of that? Saul's eyes were open, but he saw nothing. Well, of course, there is the possible physiological interpretation, explanation. His literal eyes remained open, but he couldn't see. Because apparently, as we're going to learn in verse 18 in a moment, uh, something like scales had grown over them. God had blinded him temporarily, physically so that he could open 
is spiritual eyes. I think that's what verse 8 is pointing us to here, this deeper truth. This is the very moment when Paul gained his spiritual sight, when God opened the eyes of his heart. Now, I will admit that this may sound a little out there to some of y'all, some of you, if you are a strict materialist, if you believe that matter is all that there is, if I can't physically see it, touch it, measure it, observe it, it must not exist, then you're going to have trouble with point number two here. Those of us who do believe in immaterial reality, we might try and help you by appealing to concepts and feelings, things that are incorporeal, but yet no less real, things like love. You can't see love, can you? You can't measure love unless you count the Michael Scott definition of a present. A present is a tangible thing that you can point to and say, hey man, I love you that many dollars worth. But other than that, I mean, you can't see love. And yet few of us doubt its existence, do we? Christians would say, that's a lot like God. As a matter of fact, God is capital L love. God's not just loving, he is Love, the source, the origination, the, the very definition from which all other lesser loves derive their meaning. And so we believe then that there is this whole other spiritual plane of existence, a spiritual world, if you will. And you and I have these things called spirits. Actually, we don't have them, we are them. We have bodies, we are spirits. On average, the cells in our bodies die out and replace themselves every seven to ten years. But I'm still willed of all. Like if I got arrested tomorrow for a crime that I had allegedly committed 10 years ago, my defense can't be, that wasn't me, your honor. Uh, that criminal died. I'm just the guy who replaced him. No. Right, just because I get a new body every 10 years or whatever, I, I, I've got a body. I am a spirit. And so is God. Got a spirit. John 4, 24. That's why Hebrews eleven twenty seven can say of Moses in the Old Testament, it says that he was seeing God who is invisible. I mean, that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Moses was seeing God who is invisible, but Moses was spiritually seeing a being who is physically invisible. Paul prays in his letter to the Ephesians that they would have the eyes of their hearts open. And toward the end of this very same book, Acts, Paul is going to retell his own conversion story again, rejoicing that God opened his spiritual eyes so that he might go to others and open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and receive forgiveness of sins. Friends, that's the kind of vision that you and I so desperately need this morning. It is the spiritual vision to see three very plain and yet very powerful incorporeal realities. Number one, that God is supreme. There is a God and you're not him. There is a creator, a sustainer. There is a telos, the ultimate aim, chief end of everything that exists in the universe. And he is infinitely higher and greater and better and more glorious than you or I could ever imagine. But number two, you are a sinner. You're a sinner. You know, sometimes uh, we, we, we get caught up thinking, well, sinners, I mean, that's people like, you know, the prostitutes and the tax collectors that Jesus, that, that's adulterers, that's murderers like Saul. I'm not, you know, I'm more good than I am bad. That's not how the Bible talks about sin. The Bible says because God is the telos, the ultimate end, the purpose for which we've all been created, 
Isaiah 43, 7 says that God created us for his own glory, and yet the reality is none of us have actually given God the full glory that is due him. Instead, we are glory thieves, aren't we? We are glory hogs. We want the glory for ourselves. We, we live like we are the telos, the purpose, the, the center of the universe. The Bible calls this sin. This is sin, trying to take God's place. And in our sin, we rightfully deserve to be discarded by God. That's what you do with something that doesn't serve its purpose, right? God made us to bring him glory. Instead, we do the exact opposite. We steal it. Imagine if you went out, you, you got a puppy. My next door neighbor's just got an adorable little lab puppy, right? Why do you get a puppy? It's for the unconditional love. It's for the joy you get from being greeted every day with their little wagging tail, that excitement every time you come home. Now imagine, instead, every time you came home, the dog is growling at you. It's attacking you. Right? A dog's supposed to bring you peace of mind. You sleep a little easier knowing it's going to alert you if there's an intruder. Maybe another reason you get a dog. What if instead the dog treats you like the intruder, stands by your bedside all the time, all night long, just yapping, barking at you, again, trying to attack you? How long are you going to keep that dog? That dog is broke. Right? I mean, what do you... That dog is broke. It doesn't serve the purpose for which it was created. Friends, that's you and me. That's us. We were created to bring God glory. Instead, we steal it. We do the exact opposite. And yet, here's the third spiritual truth that you need eyes to see this morning, that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus is your Savior. Jesus showed God the obedience that you and I failed to. He brought God the glory that you failed to. He was sinless, but then on the cross, the Bible says that Jesus traded all of his righteousness for all of your unrighteousness. We call this the divine exchange. He took the punishment rightfully owed you by virtue of your sin in order to satisfy God's righteous justice. We all want God to be just, don't we? We want things to be made right and sin to be punished until it's your sin, right? Your sin's got to be dealt with too. He did it on the cross to satisfy God's righteous justice while simultaneously pouring out God's undeserved mercy on you by granting you the eternal life that was owed Jesus because of his holiness. This is the gospel. And the only thing you have to do to believe, uh, 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 to, to be saved Gospel says you're saved by the gospel. Uh, the Bible says you're saved by believing in the gospel. The only thing you can do, the only thing you, you have to do is to believe in Jesus. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. That's the good news. The good news of the Bible is that you can believe in Jesus this morning and be saved. It takes vision. It takes spiritual sight to be able to see these spiritual truths. I was raised in the church. I had probably heard the gospel a thousand times before the scales finally fell off my eyes. I pray, I pray that this morning might be someone's Damascus road, death to life conversion experience. That this morning you might finally be able to sing on your way home in the car, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, even like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Number three, we need a new faith. 
We need new faith. Verses 10 through 16 tell us that now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from this Uh, from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. There's a lot that we could dissect and digest there if we had more time. But here is the gist of it this morning. It's not just the non-Christians here who need to be changed. It's not just the Saul's. Saul's the sinners who wandered in this morning. Sinners, right? Let me talk to the Ananiases here this morning for a minute. You need to be changed just as much. I think that it is telling that the biggest chunk of text, the most real estate that we're working through this morning in this entire passage, the biggest chunk in this whole famous story about Saul's conversion is actually devoted to Ananias. It's his lack of faith. Now, In Ananias' defense, Saul did have a reputation that preceded him for murdering people like Ananias, saints. And so I'm sure that Ananias thought, I must have misheard God. He's probably thinking, God, I'm sorry. Uh, I think I I missed a vow there or something. Did you say Sal of Tarsus? Or did you... Maybe say Saul of, of, of uh, Tangier, because I know you couldn't possibly have said Saul of Tarsus, because that's the guy who came to town to drag me off to the gallows. I'm not going to him. But Christians, don't we essentially do the same thing every time we tell God? No, every time we question something that God has called us to, every time we question something that God has brought into our lives, I saw Tim Keller tweeted just the other day, if we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives us. If we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives us. Can you say that this morning? I don't know about you. I want that kind of faith. This is the same Tim Keller, by the way, who's currently suffering from stage four pancreatic cancer. I want that kind of faith, faith that looks at a death sentence and says, God, I don't understand it, but I still trust you. Number four, we need a new family. So Ananias departed, verse 17, and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. How can Ananias call a man who just traveled 150 miles to kill him his brother? That's because the gospel changes everything. It's because according to the Bible to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be saved is to be adopted into the family of God. You get a radically new identity. And when you get adopted into God's family, you not only gain a heavenly father, but you get a whole bunch of new spiritual brothers and sisters as well. And yes, it's a little like the foster care system. Most of us got pretty neglected and abused and beaten up by the world before we came in here to the church and joined the family. So we've got some baggage that we all bring in. 
And so sometimes being a good brother or sister means taking care of the guy who was trying to kill you yesterday. But let me ask you, I mean, how many of you who have your own siblings can honestly say you've never wanted to kill them? But you still love them, don't you? They're still family, aren't they? Friends, the church is God's family. The Bible also calls the church the bride of Christ. In God's eyes, if you're married in here, when you got married, two become one. That's what the Bible says. And so when Christ took his bride, the church, he's united with her, one body, Christ as its head. That's why Jesus didn't say back in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. To dislike the church is to dislike Jesus. To be apathetic about the church, come twice a year, is to be apathetic about Jesus. But to love the church is to love its head, is to love Jesus. Maybe some of you this morning are adopted children of God, but you ran away from home a long time ago, and you haven't bothered to stop and call home in a very long time. If that's you this morning, if you're being here this morning, the first time of of two this year is your way of calling to check in on behalf of the church this morning. I want to tell you, thank you for being here. Welcome home. You should be here more than twice a year. You need to be here. Jesus didn't die for you to be here twice a year. Jesus didn't give us the gift of the church, the bride. You hang out with your wife twice a year? The church is far too great of a gift to be neglected. We're glad you're back. Welcome back. You belong here. Welcome home. But you need to be here more regularly, some of you. The church, the spiritual family, it's God's one of God's greatest gifts. We all need folks like Ananias to pray for us, to heal us emotionally, spiritually, to encourage us, to remind us of God's promises when we inevitably doubt and wander, to keep us on the right path when we stray in our sin. I don't know how people get through some of the tough times, things like stage four cancer. How do you get through that without family, without a spiritual? Why would you want to get, try and white knuckle, get through it without the love and the support of a spiritual family to come alongside you and walk with you through life's darkest times. Maybe that wasn't your experience at a previous church. And again, if that's you this morning, just more neglect and abuse at a previous church, I just, I'll, I'll apologize again. This whole morning could just be me apologizing on behalf of the church. It's a big family. There's bound to be a few rat, rotten apples out there. But can I just be honest? The truth is we're all rotten. I mean, uh, we, we're glad you're here this morning. I hope you stick around. But if you stick around long enough, I promise you're going to discover every single one of us is rotten. We're all sinners. 100% of the people sitting here in this room are sinners. We're all just, just very, very shadowy reflections of the God who we were made to reflect the glory of. We're going to try and do our best to love you like Jesus does if you stick around West Hills, but we're going to fail. We're going to disappoint you because no family is perfect. But guess what? They're still family. And it's better than no family. And if Jesus hasn't given up on this family yet, if Jesus hasn't given up on the church yet after 2,000 years, then maybe it's time this morning for some of you to give church a second chance. Lastly, number five. We need a new life. We need a new life. 
Saul has finally hit his rock bottom. He can't see. He hasn't eaten or drunk anything in three days, which, by the way, is about as long as you can survive without water, especially in the Syrian heat. But worst of all, the reality is starting to sink in that Saul has devoted his entire life not just to a lie, but to an atrocity. He is guilty of persecuting God. But when Ananias prays for him in verse 18, everything changes. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Sight restored, not just physically, but now he can see spiritually too. Strength restored, again, not just physically, but he's baptized as a sign of his internal spiritual renewal as well. Friends, Saul experienced new life in Christ on the Damascus Road. Here's how he would put it years later. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. Maybe some of you this morning need new. You need to experience some newness in your life. Maybe you're a late adopter like me and you've been skeptical, you've made excuses, you've been stubborn, you've been scared, but maybe like me 10 years ago, maybe like Saul this morning, you are approaching rock bottom and you're realizing maybe God's got you there because that's exactly where he wants you. He knows exactly what he's doing, that that's exactly what it would take for you to finally change, to finally let him have a chance at the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel and to begin to change you. Maybe you're afraid you can't change this morning. You don't have the strength, the power. You're right. You don't on your own. But God does. With God, all things are possible. Maybe you feel like you don't deserve new life in Christ. Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You're right. Again, you don't deserve. You don't deserve salvation. Join the club. Paul is our president. He, uh, he said so in 1 Timothy 1. He said, uh, I am foremost of sinners. Let me ask you, have any of y'all killed anyone for believing in Jesus lately? I see no hands raised. That means God saved worse than you. And he can do it again this morning for you. And then God used him, Saul, to change more lives than anyone in history. Why? Paul tells us, I received mercy for this very reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you want eternal life this morning? Do you want new life? Do you want new? Do you want change? Do you need to be changed this morning? Eternal life can be yours in Christ if you will but repent and believe in him. The old, gone. The new can come this morning. This morning can be your Damascus road. Or maybe you're not interested. You have mixed feelings. You're ambivalent. Maybe you know, I, I'm not interested at all. I'm not changing. And this sermon can't get over soon enough for some of you. Well, good news, I'm done. But even better news, God's not. He's not done with you. Saul wasn't looking to make a change either. He wasn't looking for new life. But new life found him that day because Jesus found him. And I trust and I pray that the hound of heaven is going to hunt you down in his own time, even if it's not this morning as well.